0: Some of you, after my comments on the culture, will probably need to make sure you can get back in fellowship again. And uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have the comfort of your word. We know that you have a plan and that history is the outworking of that plan, and even though you have... Uh, determined that within history, mankind has volition. Nevertheless, we know that you rule and overrule to bring about your purposes. Father, we know that we can rest and relax, knowing that you are in control, that no matter what happens, that you will either, de- either deliver us from the trauma or you, you will de- deliver us through it, or we will indeed just be absent from the body and taken to be with you. Father, the issue, therefore, is how we trust you and that we can relax no matter what the circumstances are. We continue to pray for Israel. We know that if uh, the end times are near, that their trajectory is not very positive for a while. We pray that you would uh, strengthen their leadership, give courage to Prime Minister Netanyahu, and Father, we pray for wisdom to the leaders that we have in this nation and that the plans they have that would not bring peace the plans that they have that would just exacerbate the situation would be brought to naught. And we pray that those who understand reality as you've defined it would be able to have influence in the halls of government. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening that you might help us to understand the things that are going on around us and that we might be able to interpret the circumstances of our own time on the basis of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 1, and what we have been seeing in Romans chapter 1 is pretty much a pathology of human viewpoint culture. Human viewpoint culture is defined as a culture that rejects the revelation of God, whether we're talking about general revelation or we're talking about special revelation, they've rejected the revelation of God and substituted some other metaphysical system. Now, what do I mean by metaphysical system? That's always a word that confuses people. Meta is a Greek word that means beyond, and physical, of course, means the physical world. So it's metaphysics has to do in philosophy. I'm not talking about that uh, Twilight Zone New Age movement misuse of metaphysics but the actual legitimate study of metaphysics, has to do with understanding that which eye cannot see and ear cannot hear. That is the study of that which goes beyond the empirical and beyond the physical. And so it usually relates to the study of whether or not there is some kind of supreme being, deity or something other than uh, what we can see on the basis of science or empiricism uh, alone. And then so... What Romans 1 teaches, what Paul teaches, is everybody knows God exists, number one. Number two, the trend is that everybody rejects that and suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. And three, they exchange that for another idea. That means that everybody's religious, everybody's worshiping something as God, even if it's uh, their own uh, ability and worshiping themselves through their own arrogance. I talked about the arrogant skills self-absorption, self-indulgence, leading to self-justification, which leads to self-deception, and which leads to self-deification. And ultimately, whenever a creature is making a decision, am I going to worship God or am I going to worship something else? Is there a God where they make themselves the ultimate determiner of truth? When they make themselves the ultimate determiner of truth, just as Eve did, uh, Satan just asked her that question, has God said? And she just walked, followed him into his little trap, so that she is deter- puts herself in a position to determine if God was right or wrong. And that is self-deification. We put ourselves over God. And so that just leads this wicked circle putting the individual in the center, the ultimate determiner of truth. Now, I <clears throat> also saw last time that there are certain patterns that occur in terms of the sin nature. And the sin nature is driven by this lust pattern, which is emphasized a number of different times in the these verses we're looking at, starting in verse uh, 23, that as the human being as a culture rejects God and replaces it with some other deity no matter what that deity may be what God does is He begins to give them over and we saw last time that that's a word that it's not just a passive idea that God is giving people or He's, there, he's just going to let them reap the consequences of their decision but He's going to orchestrate how the ne- those negative consequences develop and He's going to give them over to lust patterns, so that their lusts become more and more uncontrollable. And this uh, degenerates within a culture, and there are three stages in this passage of God giving them up. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And so you have these successive stages of degeneracy, uh, perversion and rank, uh, immorality. We looked at the two different areas of production in the, uh, in the, uh, sin nature towards human good or relative righteousness. Everybody can do some good. Jesus even told the disciples, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Everybody can do relatively good things. It's just not, uh, Absolute righteousness, which is what God requires. Personal sins are the area of weakness. But the real motivator, the mover, the shaker of the uh, sin nature is those lust patterns, which go in two different directions. And sometimes, if you've really stressed yourself out and you just have a lot of fragmentation in your soul, well, uh, you, oh, I, I went too far, you can... Um, You're going to do both at the same time, and people at that point will think you've absolutely lost your mind, which is partially true. We have asceticism, legalism, and rationalism. The rationalism is the intellectual uh, counterpart to asceticism and and, uh, legalism. That leads to moral degeneracies exhibited by the Pharisees and the trend towards licentiousness and lasciviousness, which is so characteristic of our age, we do live in this kind of a uh, split personality era where, on the one hand, we have uh, a self-righteous reaction uh, from a number of different people uh, within our culture. You get it on the campus with political correctness and this self-righteousness that we have, uh, that we're somehow different or better than all of the previous generations. And so it's motivated by a tremendous amount of arrogance. And at the other side, there's also a manifestation of a lot of licentiousness because their self-righteousness is manifested through a rejection of accepted norms, of accepted traditional norms and standards, whether those are biblical or cultural uh, Depends on the circumstance, but what you have is a rejection of those uh, norms and standards which have governed our the history of our nation and our culture or Western civilization for anywhere from 200 to uh, 2,000 years. So there, there really is this this uh, it's almost like a bipolar sort of of thing. It's it's just tremendous instability which manifests itself in a number of different uh, number of different areas so last time we looked at we looked at Romans 1 24 and 25 which sets up a the, the foundational uh, disciplinary position God puts mankind in now one thing I want to note here is that when you look at this at the text here all of the verbs now there's a couple of there's a few present participles in here generally speaking present participles pick up the time aspect of their um, uh, of their finite verb but all the finite verbs from 24 or 20 uh 24 actually down through the end of the chapter 24 to 32 are all aorist tense verbs Now, there's some debate as to the sense or the nuance of those aorist tense verbs. Is this a historical aorist or is this a gnomic aorist? Now, there's nothing objective in the text to distinguish between those two. Let me explain the difference. If it's a historic aorist, then what Paul is talking about is a pattern of degeneracy that was evidenced historically. You could see it between Adam and Noah And then you could see it again between Adam, I mean, between, excuse me, between Noah and the Tower of Babel, and eventually to Sodom and Gomorrah. Or is he talking gnomically, which means these are general or universal principles that are characteristic of all people at all times? I think that Paul, in the structure of his argument here, that's where you have to go, is that Paul is talking in this chapter about the underlying problem that the human race faces. And then he is going to critique them uh, in terms of two different categories of persons starting in chapter 2. Chapter 2 addresses the moral person who thinks that in his relative righteousness he can garner the uh, approval of God. And then starting in the middle to late part of chapter 2, he's going to switch over to the religious person who thinks that somehow in his religion, specifically uh, following the law of Moses, that he can uh, garner the approval of God. So since the structure of his thought here suggests that he's not thinking in terms of a gnomic or universal principle, but he's talking about the historic manifestations of the rejection of God and negative volition and idolatry historically. So, verse 23 and 24, we looked at last time, or excuse me, 24 and 25, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now that clause, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, certainly indicates perhaps that he's talking about sexual sin, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's all that's in view here. It always seems to me that, that a lot of evangelicals who trend to the left side over there, the legalism and the asceticism side, always seem to try to read everything in terms of some sort of sexual sin. We have enough sexual sin in, category, in the second giveover and the third give over. We don't have to necessarily have it in the first one. The lust patterns, there are many lust patterns. There's a lust for approval, approbation lust. There's a, a lust for power, a lust for money, a lust for things, a uh, lust for various uh, uh, chemicals that you can be dependent upon, whether it's alcohol or drugs, you know, just a lust for pleasure. There's all kinds of lusts. You can probably come up with 20 uh, different lust patterns on your own. Uh, lust is not restricted to just sexual lust. It is just this desire to find meaning and purpose and value in life through something in the creation. And that can be, uh, you can even have a lust to sleep. Now, I know some of you think that would be a good thing because you work too much, but, um, and on occasion I feel that way too. So there are times when a lust for sleep isn't necessarily sinful. We'll just have that as a private doctrine here at West Houston Bible Church. Um, but there's all manner of different lusts, and uncleanness also is not a word, although it's used a few times, the context is very clear that it is related to sexual sin. But that's not true here. We, don't, we haven't had that brought into the context yet. What is focused on here is the idea of sin, and uncleanness is a word ultimately that is used for any kind of sin that separates man from God, which is any sin whatsoever. Any, anything can render a person, any sin can remember, render a person separated from God. Remember that word uncleanness was used numerous times in the Mosaic law in terms of ritual uncleanness. And a person could just about do anything or touch anything and it might render them ritually impure. So God was teaching how pervasive sin was and that there are many, many things that we don't even think of that are sin, think of as sin that are, that, that's indeed sin. So God gave them up to uncleanness. He, he begins to, as it were, take the restraint or if you like an engine analogy, take the governor off the motor. And allow the person to just become a little more, uh, you know, ratchet up their RPMs a little bit so they become a little more sinful. And there, they, he does this to those who, verse 25, who have exchanged the, uh, truth of God for the lie. And here in Paul's thinking, he is clearly, uh, he clearly accepts the fact that there is one truth. It is God's truth with a capital T. That God defines truth because God is the creator, is the one who defines reality. Reality is what it is because God says that's what it is. But when we exchange truth for a lie, what we're doing is we're trying to create our own reality. We're going to have our own reality TV show. It's going to run between our left ear and our right ear. It will run uh, all day long during those waking hours, and we're going to try to Live our life on the basis of that fantasy. We're basically building little castles in the sky. Definition of neurotics, and then we move in the psychotics, and then uh, the psychiatrists get to uh, get to uh, claim the rent. So they, these are uh, those who have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And it doesn't matter who you are discussing, whether it is Christopher Hitchens um, or Madeline Murray O'Hare or whomever it may be, they are serving and worshiping some aspect of creation. They are inherently religious. They're worshiping that instead of God. And so then we come to the second stage, verse 26, for this reason... The this refers back to what was just said in verse 25. For this reason, that is, that they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. For this reason, God gave them up. And now we go to the second stage of intensity. God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, Burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. All right, let's look at what this verse says. First of all, God gave them up to vile passion. Certainly the translation of the New King James there uh, of vile indicates a certain negative or pejorative judgment on these kinds of passions. The fact that an adjective is uh, of this type is added to passions, passion is simply a word for uh, lusts, another word for uh, the lust patterns. The word for passions is the word pathos. Sometimes it's used to describe suffering, and it's used that way because of the intense emotions that are generated in suffering. Also, it, it translates strong, pas- strong desires or lustful passions. So the passions here relate to the category of lusts that motivate from the core of the sin nature. These, though, are uh, in the, the description is intensified here by the use of this word ah atemiah, because Atimia basically means that which is dishonorable. The timia, the noun timae, is a noun for honor. When you put the uh, alpha prefix in front of it, it negates it, so it makes it dis, the concept of dishonorable. It's not a timas, which is a, a noun. This is an adjective, and so it describes a state of shame, dishonor, or disgrace. So it is used adjectivally with pathos indicating dishonorable disgraceful or or shameful lusts and this is uh, God gives them over to this so once again the um it, as it were the uh the governor comes off of the uh the sin nature, and things just become uh much. Uh, much worse. And then we're told how this is manifest. It's manifest in this next phrase by the word for, indicating an explanation. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. I think it's interesting that Paul deals with this in terms of women first. That's not Paul's opinion, by the way. That is the... Uh, that is uh, the pattern that God sets forth here. I don't necessarily think that this order here indicates women first and then men, but I, it's, I think it is put this way because women are responders. And we'll talk about the difference between men and women in a, in a moment. But I think what we see here is that this becomes manifested in women first because the men have failed to be men. They have either abused their authority or they have uh, rejected their own authority. They've abdicated their authority, in which case the women have nothing left to respond to, and so they turn from their men to women. So men, it's your fault. Not necessarily the ones of you that are here, but this is the trend of the male sin nature, I believe. For their women exchange a natural use for what is against nature. Now the word translated exchange is the word meta lasso, which indicates to exchange one thing for uh, another. It is similar to a, another Greek word katalasso, same root, which is the word for reconciliation. So this is by adding the prefix meta, it changes the meaning and changes it to this idea of exchange. This is the same word that is used uh, back in verse 23, uh, changing the, excuse me, verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. It's that same word. So what they're doing is they're redefining reality. Now, in the early years of the Soviet Union, they tried to experiment with role models uh, reversals among men and women, uh, with the uh, understanding the idea that men and women are just interchangeable parts. And so they, what they did a completely away with traditional male and female roles within Russian society. And it led to a collapse in the family and it led to a collapse in the workplace because. Uh, men need to be men and women need to be women. And so they had to go back to allowing um, more traditional roles. When women reach certain levels of responsibility and authority or were put in certain levels of responsibility and authority within the Russian culture, what happened was that the, the men just quit. Uh, women have a unique area of creativity, and that's in the womb. Men, I believe, are designed by God to have a unique area of creativity as well, and that's in the realm of work and labor. And when women become involved in those areas of creativity, the men need to have an area of unique involvement and unique leadership. And this is set forth, this is one of the reasons why God distinguishes roles for men and women in the Scripture. I'll get into some other areas of that uh, as we go through this lesson, so we see that the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature, what is contrary to nature. And here we have the Greek word fusikos, natural in the sense of that God's normative design. The word is used uh, a number of uh, different ways by Paul, but here it has that idea of that which was the uh, intent of God. Uh, so God intended by the creation of a man and a woman to have uh, heterosexual relationships and not homosexual or same-sex uh, relationships. Now, there are some in uh, the modern arguments and discussions about uh, homosexuality, nature versus nurture, and uh, what does the Bible actually say. There are those who try to claim that this verse isn't talking about homosexuality. It's talking about uh things that are are, are wrong within a uh, heterosexual relationship. That is proven uh, to be uh, a wrong interpretation by the beginning of the next verse, which begins with the Greek word homoios, which means likewise or in the same manner or similarly. The men burned in their lust for one another. So if... Verse 27 and verse 26 are are analogous then. Verse 26 has to be talking about uh, same-sex relationships uh, between uh, between women. So in verse 27, we have the application of this to the men. The men leaving the natural use of the woman, this, that same word, phusikos. Burned in their lust, and the word translated burned is a word that indicates uh, being inflamed. Uh, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, what is degenerate. Uh, this is the idea there. And the word that's used for men here is an antiquated Greek word, arsen. You also have an antiquated Greek word for women in the passage. But these are the words that are used for male and female in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter one. And so Paul uses those particular words. They're not normally the words he uses for male and female in the New Testament. He uses those words because he's talking about what happened from the beginning after the fall uh, in Genesis chapter three. So the men leaving their natural Uh, Use of the women burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And that indicates that there is a physical consequence, doesn't define what that is, but that there will be physical consequences that come as a result of uh, same-sex activity, homosexual activity. And what we see at the very least here in this passage is that when men and women succumb to idolatry and they begin on a downward trajectory in terms of their rejection of God and their arrogance, that God turns them over. He takes the restraint off of that sin nature. And the way he does that is primarily within the realm of male and female relationships. Now, this is a really important observation here, that when a culture or a society begins to really go out of control, it manifests itself by divine design within male and female relationships. Now, just put the pause button on that for a minute, and let's just think about what's happened within the history of let's say, Western civilization and history of our own country going back to the early part of the 19th century. We started to see in the 1830s and 1840s the rise of, of uh, the feminist movement in the 19th century. Now, you'll never hear people talk about its relationship to bad theology, but it had a bad theological foundation in the... Uh, in the early 19th century, came out of the uh, Unitarian transcendental utopic views that dominated both Finneyism within Evangelicalism, which was a quasi-liberal sort of approach to man and mankind and minimize sin, uh, and it was wedded to transcendentalism on the uh, on the other side, the Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Alcott version of uh, Louisa May Alcott and her whole family and their their version of uh, of utopia and bringing in a utopic society. And what happens on this side, uh, of what we would later call liberalism, but at this point it's sort of like, pro, I would call it proto-liberalism, is that they, ident- they believed that man was basically good, whether they were the Christians of the Finney variety uh, I'm speaking of Charles Grandison Finney, who was often who was often touted as a great evangelist of this period, but he didn't believe in total depravity. He didn't believe uh, he believed that every human being is born without sin, just as Adam was created without sin. He didn't believe in a um, substitutionary atonement of Christ, and in my my view, I don't think that he ever understood the gospel. He may have at one point, but then he distorted it within his writings and his theology. He believed man was perfectible. And if man is perfectible, then society and culture are perfectible. And he was post-millennial. We can bring in the millennial kingdom. The church, in terms of Christendom, will bring in uh, the millennial kingdom. And so there was an affinity between the non-Christian version of the transcendentalists and the Christian version of uh, of the Phineites, and they identified four or five basic uh, societal sins that if we can just clean up these sins, then we will have a perfect society, a perfect country. The first sin, of course, was slavery the second sin was uh, women 's suffrage the third sin had to do with with labor and uh, related to unions, the fourth sin, or, or the third sin, actually was temperance and prohibition. The next sin is labor, and then uh, tangential to that would be the fifth, which was child labor. Now, if you think about the history of the United States and social action from the 1830s on you that's first they dealt with slavery then they uh were dealing with temperance and women's suffrage and then labor and you have the rise of labor unions and the, and they, that became very influenced by uh communism socialism and the social gospel from liberal christianity to the late 19th century and early 20th century so what that that theological matrix They came out of the 1830s, really set the social action agenda for the next 150 years in the United States, and we're suffering the consequences from that ever since. One of their big things had to do with the, the role of women in society, because according to the U.S. Constitution, originally women were not given the right to vote. Now, there was a reason for that, and you were probably never taught this in any history class. The reason was is because in the vision of the founding fathers, the country was made up not of individuals, which is how we think of the U.S. today, just, you know, a bunch of individuals. It was made up of family units, and the head of the family was the man. And so the man voted because he represented a family entity. They understood that it was the family that was the core cohesive element within a nation, that if you break down the family, you break down marriage, you break down the culture. So they, they came from that perspective. Now, once you have the nation shift away from a biblical God, which begins in the early 19th century, then you begin to see a deterioration historically that affects the role of men and women and how men view men and women view women. So I want to give you a couple of biblical points to just uh, begin with uh, as, we look at this, as, as we look at this subject. First of all, God designed um, human beings to operate together as a unit. He designed human beings to operate as a team, a marriage, and then a family. It's a team concept. The emphasis in Genesis 126 is that God created man, created man the image and likeness of God, male and female. He created them so that men and women are equally in the image and likeness of God, and together they were to exercise rulership or dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, uh, and the animals of the field. It was a team operation. So in the pre-fall condition, the standard for God is a couple who together complements one another in the outworking of God's plan of man ruling over creation. The primary purpose here is that they could serve God better. So there was a role distinction given. The man is the leader and the woman is the assistant. Now, there's a lot of women who don't like that idea, but that's because you've been influenced probably by the human viewpoint thinking of our culture that somehow being an assistant is bad. The word that's used there in the in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word azer, which means a helper or an assistant, one who comes along and enables the first person to get the job done. The only other entity in the Bible who is described as an Azer is God. Now think about this theologically. If you say it is somehow demeaning to be a helper You have just committed blasphemy against God. You have just said God is demeaned. It is a demeaning thing to be like God and to be a helper. I mean, the fact that only women and God are called Atsers puts women in a pretty high position. Unfortunately, that hasn't always been recognized or, or had much of an impact on how men treat women. So women were designed to be aidsers, to be helpers. They needed to help the man do what God told him to do. I always teach in, in, in dealing with marriage that don't ever marry some guy who doesn't know where he's going because your role is to help him get there. And if you don't, if he doesn't know where he's going, once he finds out, you may not want to help him get there. So women need to make sure that that guy knows where he's going before they decide to jump on the bandwagon. Now, when sin came along, it really muddied things up. And as a result of sin, God said that there was an impact on these roles. And I've taught this before, and we'll just hit it briefly in Genesis chapter 3, uh, starting in, in verse 15. Verse 14 starts the, uh, outlining the judgment upon the, the serpent and then uh, 15 deals with the enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman and then verse 16 starts dealing with the woman and says these are consequences this isn't this isn't a penalty for sin the penalty of sin was spiritually dead so they're standing there before God they've already experienced the penalty how do we know that because when God showed up they ran and hid and then they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves so they're already spiritually dead That's the penalty for sin. This is the consequence of the penalty for sin. And he says to the woman, I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. The idea in the Hebrew is you're now, you you, you were going to have babies before, but now it's going to be painful. See, what was the mandate they were given before the fall to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every one of these things impacts their, the charge that God originally given them. I originally told you to make a lot of babies and fill the earth. Now you're, it's going to be painful and hard and difficult. I originally told the man to till the soil and to keep, keep and guard the garden. Now you're going to have weeds and thorns and thistles, and it's going to be tough to carry out the the original mandate. So see how the curse works. But the point is in the last clause, God says to, to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, there have been a lot of people over the ages who said that somehow that indicates an emotional desire or a sexual desire and that if you uh, are, have a happy, successful marriage, then, then men, your wife, is going to lust for your body. Now, you know, that may feed your ego, but it's bad theology. That's, this isn't talking about sexual desire or even emotional desire. It's talking about power lust. And what it's telling every one of you guys is you're married to a woman who really wants to wear the pants in the family. Now, through grace and doctrine and spiritual growth, that may not be an issue. But what this is saying is that the trend of the, of the woman is that she wants to be the power player and the authority in the home, I mean, in the, in the marriage. And see, that relates to what was her, her original job? To be the helper. Now in sin, she's going to want to be the driver. Okay? Riding shotgun just isn't going to work anymore. She wants to take the wheel. But the he shall rule over you, and the Hebrew word here, mashal, indicates has a trend towards a a dominant, domineering, tyrannical sort of rule. So in those two lines, you have the war of the sexes. It goes right back to the fall. Ladies want to wear the pants in the family, and he wants to exercise his authority in an unreasonable, tyrannical fashion. And therein lies a lot of history. Now, we know that that word for desire uh, has that uh, connotation because in the next chapter, uh, God warns Cain. As Cain is jealous about Abel, God says, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. See, it's pictures of this ravenous wolf who wants to consume you. So this isn't a nice, sweet, loving, passionate desire. It's something something, uh, something, evil and voracious. So that's the problem. Now, the only thing that can reverse that is going to be the word of God and grace. But this works itself out negatively in a lot of ways. The principle we're seeing here is that a culture, a culture that rejects God, is going to be given over to certain consequences by God in terms of judgment and discipline upon that nation, upon that culture, upon those people, and it's going to play itself out in role relations between men and women. So these sex roles aren't interchangeable. Now, remember I said that men and women are a team. Think about a football team. You may not be a big football fan, but you at least hopefully understand the concept of a sports team where everybody has an assigned role. And no role is ontologically better than another role. That means that, that the, the, the right guard is not a better human being or a worse human being than your running back. And the quarterback is not inherently a better or worse human being because he's the quarterback than the tight end. Each person has a role to play on the team, and when everybody functions in their role and they do it well, then they win the game. But if somebody be- acts outside of their role and disobeys the coach, then you've got a problem. Now, there's there's a rule, um, uh, there's a rule in football where you have certain individuals, certain positions that are designated as um, uh, as a receiver. I just lost the word. Um, An undesignated uh, an undesignated receiver, a what's the word? Come on, you guys who know football. Um, It's not illegitimate. You know, ineligible, that's a word. I just had a blank on that. You've got an ineligible receiver. I couldn't get my tongue around. Ineligible receiver. Very good, Jeff. I knew I could count on. You've got an ineligible receiver. You can't pass or lateral to a, a a guard or a tackle. You can't do it. That's not his role. But how many guards or tackles are walking around whining and mewing to the football commissioner and saying, oh, you know, I'm just treated so poor. They don't have any respect for me because I can't get, receive a pass like the other guys can. I want to receive a pass too. But see, that's what women are doing. They're ineligible leaders. And they're running around going, But God, I, I want to be able to, to to catch a pass like the guys do. That's not your role. That's not your role. It doesn't mean you're less of a human being or more of a human being or anything else. It's just that God says you got one role and they got another role. And it all gets screwed up with sin and ego and everything else. Now, I don't have time to go through this, but if you look at the book of Judges, which is a uh, tremendous commentary on how a culture goes from being right with God, faithful to God, obedient to God, to being disobedient to God, and and acting just like the Canaanites. By the end of Judges, the last judge is Samson. He never delivers them. He never really governs or leads the people. He is nothing more than a uh, a womanizer. He's lustful. He is totally self-absorbed. Uh, we should call it Samsonism and not narcissism because he is much more of a narcissist than Narcissus. Everything is about Samson. And then you have these two other weird episodes that occur at the end of the book of Judges, one of which involves a woman, a concubine, who is treated so poorly, no respect by the men that when the men in in the town of Gibeah want to have their way with her, and there's a lot of parallels in language and everything else between that episode and and the episode uh, in Sodom uh, that occurs in Genesis 17, that the men throw her out, and she is gang-raped and abused all night long and dies from it. And then the, the, her husband, who's a Levite, cuts up her body into 12 parts and sends it out as a message to the other tribes in Israel, and they all come together and go to war against Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. There's this big civil war that almost wipes out and annihilates the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's pr- a pretty abusive view of women. The last judge, you've got a womanizer. Who has no respect at all for women. And then you have this episode with this concubine. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the book, you have the first woman is, is Caleb's daughter. And she shows respect and wisdom and skill. And Caleb says, whoever, uh, whoever takes Hebron, uh, you know, that'll be, I'll, I'll give my daughter, uh, Oxa to him. And so, uh, uh, she, uh, he, uh, she is given as, uh, the wife of, the first judge, and she comes She comes to her father. And she said, well, you gave him all this land, but there's no water there. Why don't you give us this parcel over there so we have a good well? And she comes to him with deference and respect, not arrogance. And so everything that is said about her is good. Then the next woman is Deborah, and Deborah is a judge. And the indication in the Scripture is because all the men have abdicated leadership, and this is evidenced by her commanding general, Barak, who won't go into battle because she needs to go with him. I'm not going to go up against those guys unless you go with me. And she specifically tells him as an oracle from God that because you're such a weenie and won't go up without me, then the glory for defeating Sisera is going to be given to a woman. And so then Sisera, as he flees from the battlefield, stays in the tent of Jael, and she nails him, drives a tent stake through his temple. And so you see the, there's an honorable view of women there, but there's, you're starting to see there's a problem with male leadership. And then you get to the episode with Jephthah, and Jephthah ends up sacrificing his daughter. So you have a much lower view of women there. And then you get to Samson, and women are just sex objects. And what, what the trajectory of the book of Judges is that the more pagan the nation becomes, the more warped the relations between the sexes are, and the more abused the women are. Now, that plays itself out today, and we have similar problems. i got a couple of examples I want to share just to, sh- just to give you an idea how this infiltrates the church. pastor friend of mine, some of you may guess who it is, was sent a pastor leadership survey. And a number of questions are on this pastor leadership survey. And it was sent to him by a former student of his who is now working on her doctorate of ministry at Dallas Theological Seminary. I want to read to you a couple of these questions. These fit in a couple of different ways. So I was going to read this from one perspective because I want you to see that the framework out of which the, the presuppositions from which these questions are asked are, in my opinion, completely invalid. It's, it's like asking the question, have you quit beating your wife yet? However you answer them, you're wrong. The, the questions really presuppose a certain approach to ch- the church that we don't believe is valid. And as he was going through this, he called me about every third question, like, how do I answer this without writing three paragraphs to explain, I don't believe in the way the question is asked, it ought to be asked this way. I said, you can't, just tell her like you would an unbeliever, I don't agree with the presuppositions of this test, so, I mean, of the, this questionnaire, so I'm not going to answer the questions because I don't want to write a doctoral dissertation. And he wrote it. he did send that to her in a very nice way. Question one, our church leadership creates a culture of celebrating its leaders who take steps of faith. See, this is evangelical verbiage. Take steps of faith. What do you mean by taking steps of faith? You know, we're to walk by the Spirit, which literally means in Galatians 5.26, to walk in the footsteps of the Spirit. But that's not what they mean. I think what they're trying to say is that we celebrate our leaders who step out in life by trusting God. Um, but that's not what they say, so they cloud it up with all this almost emotional type of, of verbiage. You find that kind of language coming out of the business climate that we have and the culture in a lot of businesses and in business schools. You would never have Lewis Berry Chafer even think of a question like that, not to mention a few pastors we know. Um, Another question, our church leadership minimizes negative consequences for mistakes by staff members i mean i don 't even think this way. Our church leadership strives for mixed gender leadership team for a mixed gender leadership team. Uh, female leaders feel, feel their input is wanted. <laughs> Maybe we'll go through this at the next deacons meeting. Um, Our church is an open, transparent place for leaders to be honest with each other about their sin. You like that one? Our church has undergone a healing process. See, I don't even like using the word healing in this way. A healing process to uncover past or present unconfessed sin. Um, our, our church leadership makes developing female leadership a top priority. Um, here's another one. Our church leadership has established boundaries to protect staff members from indiscretions and infidelity. Um, anyway, a lot of these questions have to, something to do with the role of men and women in a church, and I think they're coming at it from a right Right way. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, but it's the way they ask the questions, inform the questions, which presupposes uh, something that I don't think would have existed uh, 50 years ago in evangelical Christianity. Um, my question for you: uh, Our church leadership involves staff members in, de- in decision making in a healthy way. What's healthy? How does health have to do with this? I mean, we know what they're trying to get at, but but this is this is really bad verbiage. And it pre- it looks at relationships within in, within a health model, which isn't the model or framework that we find we find in scripture. But this works itself out in other ways too in our culture. And one of these is something that I'm sure all of you have have had to deal with and run into, in um, in dealing with certain things in in your workplace. And one of these has to do with gender inclusive language, which has. Uh, really gained a lot of purchase hold in um, in evangelicalism. Uh, several months ago, I was asked to write some articles for a new publication, new Bible dictionary coming out. And the first article I was working on was on the book of Judges. And so today, I was about 80% done with it, and I went through their style sheet that they had sent me, and I noticed something I'd not noticed before under Roman numeral eight. Inclusive language. Please avoid, this is from a biblical publisher. Please avoid using language that arbitrarily assigns roles or characteristics to people on the basis of sex, race, etc. See, there's assumption there. That is that the assigning of certain roles based on sex is arbitrary. Does God have a plan here or not? I mean, does the word of God indicate something or not? It says, in particular, articles should avoid referring to man, likewise, mankind, men, he, his, and so on, generically. Language regarded as patriarchal should be modified to avoid giving wrong impressions. Similarly, translations of biblical and other texts when made by the contributor should be no more gender-specific than the texts are judged to be. Citations of standard translations of the Bible should not be altered. They got it wrong because they're sexist, but we've got to leave it that way. That's what that last sentence means. So I wrote her. I think it's a her because she spells Jesse with an I at the end. And uh, I said, I've been working to finalize my article and just ran across this in a style sheet. I have a serious problem with this inclusive format, especially in light of the message of Judges. Judges essentially describes the compromises Israel made with the pagan culture around them and their pagan values, an ancient form of political correctness. In the original language of Scripture, the third-person masculine pronoun is used for God, and generic terms for the human race are based on man because the entire race derived from uh, man and is united in the first human created who was a man. It wasn't Eve's sin that was significant, it was was Adam's. That's the point I'm making. Thus, I said, critiques of such language in the Bible, which asserts that this kind of language, clearly chosen by the Holy Spirit, is inherently patriarchal, sexist, or inappropriate, is a subtle attack on the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. As Daniel Block argues very effectively in his extensive commentary on Judges, One of the most destructive effects of paganism on Israel was on gender confusion, which led to the increasing abuse of women, failure of men to perform their God-given mission, and a general breakdown in sexual morality, marriage, and the family. I cannot in good conscience subscribe to the above policy. So she responded to me by saying, well, I'm sorry you came across this so late, but, uh, we're not going to, we can't change the policy, so perhaps you ought not write the article. To which I responded, This is really a sad testimony to the way evangelical scholarship has allowed itself to be intimidated by the pagan values of the unbelieving culture around us. The policy reads, quote, language regarded as patriarchal. Perhaps we should ask, regarded by whom? Biblical scholars for the last 19 centuries who held the text in high regard are those influenced by the relativism of a culture based on Darwinistic views that the genders are equivalent and view language as human in origin rather than divine. How do you think the three persons of the Trinity communicated to each other before Genesis 1? And if God initiated the first language, we are surely justified in thinking that the opening chapters of Genesis reflect his value system which is inherent within the structure of masculine pronouns for God and a generic man for the human race. It is truly ironic that the project I am working on is the book of Judges as this is exactly the kind of relativism identified in that era as the cause of the spiritual impotency of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The Bible clearly uses specific terms such as man, mankind, etc., to emphasize the unity of the human race in Adam. It was not the woman whose sin resulted in the fall of mankind, but the man sin. Thus, it was also necessary for the son of man, not the son of people or the son of humanity. And the Savior had to be like one, the one who failed. There was no possibility that the Savior could have been a woman. Failure to recognize that these language issues have profound theological implications is extremely serious. This is exactly the point where biblical thinking is clashing with the human viewpoint relativism of our culture. When we succumb to the value system generated by an evolutionary feminist worldview, rather than sticking with the text, we're on the verge of blaspheming the text of Scripture, which was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, down to each syllable. Thus, to assert that use of gender-specific language is somehow insulting is to say that the omniscient God chose language designed to insult and to marginalize women. This is an extremely serious theological er error, and I'm copying the president of the company on this, to appeal this decision. I also decided to send this out to the board of Chafer Seminary so that these men would be informed of such a trend. And I was pleased to get this response from Paul Schmidt Blacker. Right on, Robbie. This is the kind of subtle thing in which a stand needs to be taken. You are right on, clear, and direct. We will all be faced with similar decisions in the coming days as the Lord may carry I know this has cost you some prestige of authorship and possibly some funds, but the principle, truth, and integrity of the word are more important. It's too bad that they may, that organization may be headed down a road led by some of the other Christian book publishers where the business end trumps the stand for accurate theology. A theology that is inclusive of, uh, and yeah, he goes on with an the explanation there. He says, I hope the decision can be reviewed and reversed at higher levels. Thanks for your stand and passing on this information. So. This ha- this comes down the, all these issues. Romans one describes how an idolatrous culture has the first one of the first areas where the judgment of God is felt is in male and female roles and how they get reversed and how they get screwed up, and you see it from Genesis three all the way through the Bible. And the only way to reverse this is by understanding the Word of God and coming und- and humbling ourselves. Uh, under the Word of God, to obey the Word of God, and to follow it. It doesn't mean uh, a lot of things that people think it means that women just become doormats and everything else. That's just another distortion of the text from a false viewpoint. But what it means is that women are designed to do some things and men are designed to do some things, and what one is designed to do isn't uh, demeaning to the other. And you have, uh, but when the world comes along, operating on a human viewpoint system of Darwinism, then individuals become totally interchangeable, and it really doesn't matter, and it just wipes out all, of the, all the moral standards and all, uh, wipes out family, wipes out marriage, and the end result is cultural collapse where you have the anarchy that was like you had at the end of the period of Judges. So there is hope. That's where Paul's going to go with Romans is we're all sinners, but there's hope, and the only hope is in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, and we pray that you would help us to see how they apply in our own thinking, and especially where these issues impinge on our day-to-day activities, our jobs or careers, because it's so easy to subtly compromise just to go along and keep a job or get a paycheck. But yet what we're doing is we're slowly eroding the absolute standards we know we need to uphold uh, because that's the way you designed reality. So, Father, we pray for courage and strength to apply your word. In Christ's name, amen.